Well, good morning, everybody. We are just 10 days from Christmas. It is unstoppable. Uh, ready or not, Christmas will come all around the world. And like the first Christmas, it will come to unexpected places. It will come to places like Thailand, where we had a group from Ward this last week. We have a brand new partnership in Thailand with a, a great group called Not Abandoned that's doing fantastic work uh, in that region to end sex trafficking. And while sex slavery exists in every region of the world, the hardest hit area right now in the, globally is Southeast Asia, where this organization works. I wanted to show you a, a picture of the street that our team was on this week, but I thought it would be almost disturbing to show in a setting like this one uh, here in worship uh, to see all these signs advertising sex for sale. Um, too troubling. So instead, I want to show you a picture of our team. Uh, this small team went to uh, scout out partnership opportunities and to capture stories. And a brave young woman who goes by the name of Free agreed to talk about her experience in the sex industry and her dreams for the future. And our team asked her how she came in contact with this organization that is helping her exit. And she said, many months ago, uh, some American women walked into the bar where she works and began to talk to her, and these women were different. Uh, they were kind, and they listened, and they weren't judgmental. And Free said that she had the uncommon experience of feeling seen and valued. And as she told her story, and as our interviewers asked her more questions, we pieced together that those women that walked into the, that bar all those months ago were from Ward Church, and they're on a previous uh, trip to Thailand. Uh, isn't that something? I've never been uh, more proud of church members for walking into a sex bar than, than I am uh, right, right now. Um, here is Free with uh, Emily from our team and a photo taken just two days ago, and it looks like Free is about to live up to her name. Yeah, praise God. Yeah, it's been a really, uh, really great week, and then I walk into the Renew Cafe this morning, and they are selling uh, cookies and muffins, which would be good enough on its own, but it's even better than that. I told you this fall that we have a new partnership between Ward Church and Livonia Public Schools, and special needs high school graduates have been in our building daily learning job skills. Livonia Schools sees our large commercial kitchen as an ideal place to teach students culinary skills, and they see our people as ideal people to create a welcoming, affirming environment for students with developmental disabilities. And so starting last week, in Renew, there will be available for purchase baked goods prepared by this extraordinary group of people. What do you think about that? Yeah. One more reason to eat. Yeah, make your calories count, friends. And now we get to worship our God together. We get to. We get to sing our, uh, of our God's goodness. Uh, we get to hear God's word read and taught. We get to bring an offering. And all of these historic acts of worship we get to do together. Now, I know some of you are brand new to church, and some of you have had bad church experiences, and a lot of us come from a wide variety of church backgrounds and traditions, which is why in the month of December, we're doing a series on the topic of worship. 
What is worship? Worship, at its core, is a response. And the definition we're using for this series is this. Worship is responding uh, to God for who God is and what God has done. Worship is a response. Worship is responding to God for who God is and for what God has done. And so you can worship anytime, anywhere. You can worship at home. You can worship in your office. You can worship at your school. You can worship in your car. You can worship when you're in traffic. It's not easy, but you can do it. And we're framing our conversation about worship around postures of worship because sometimes worship works its way out in physical ways. And our physical posture sometimes reflects the posture of our hearts. And so last Sunday we looked at lift our hands. What does the Bible mean about that, lifting our hands in worship? Next Sunday we're going to look at bowing our knees. And today, bringing our gifts. And all of these postures of worship can be found throughout the Bible, Old and New Testaments, and we see it even in the Christmas story. We're in Matthew's Gospel this morning, chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. These men figured out that God was doing something new and they have come to worship. Now sometimes we refer to these uh, people as wise men or sometimes as kings but the word the Bible actually uses is the word magi. It's the Greek word magos, from which we get the English word magic. And they were something like uh, ancient astrologers, but that's not exactly accurate. We think of astrology as, as being horoscopes and things, and these guys weren't into that stuff. These were scholars. Uh, they were researchers. And as part of their intellectual pursuits, they studied the scriptures and they learned that one day the prophecy said a Messiah, a rescuer would come who would change the course of human history. And they also studied the skies because the prophecy said that this remarkable event on earth would be marked by a remarkable event in the sky that a special star would mark the time and place of his birth. And to their amazement, this began to happen in their lifetimes. So they left their country and began to travel a great distance uh, to see what God was up to, to find the answers they would hold for their lives. And they stopped in Jerusalem to ask for directions, but who else was in Jerusalem? King Herod. King Herod, the one who thought of himself as king of the Jews. So how happy do you think Herod was to meet these scholars who were asking about where they can find the new king? He's not happy. The word the Bible uses is disturbed. He's disturbed. And if you know anything about history, you know disturbed is an excellent word to describe King Herod. The story goes on. After the Magi heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. Again, I want you to think about the magnitude of their journey uh, they were from the east. We believe they were from Persia, modern-day Iran, and they would have traveled about 900 miles to get to Israel. And to put that in perspective, think about this. If we, if we stood up right now and walked due west 900 miles, we'd be somewhere near Cheyenne, Wyoming. 
And if we stood up right now and walked straight south uh, as the crow flies, we'd be somewhere near Miami, Florida, which sounds pretty good right now, right? They traveled this great distance without the benefit of airplane or automobile. They were committed. They were driven. It says in verse 10, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. They had traveled all this way. They were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. It's a great word, overjoyed, because like to be joyed would be good, to be overjoyed, even better. Joy spills out from you everywhere. Have you ever been around someone who's overjoyed? How great it is to be with them and to see them. Uh, you ever been around someone who's underjoyed? That, that's far too common, but the Bible says the Magi were overjoyed. The literal translation is they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They couldn't contain it. They couldn't keep it inside. They bowed down and they worshiped him and they brought gifts. Joy led to worship, which led to gift giving. And the gifts were extravagant. I heard a story of a Christmas pageant, uh, much like the one we got to enjoy here in the sanctuary a few moments ago. Uh, I don't know about you, but it's, it's just not Christmas until I see a camel dance. And in this, this show I heard about, it was a four-year-old, and they had practiced the lines, but they were still kind of strange to them. And so at one point, one of the four-year-olds dressed like a king came forward, and he said, I bring gold. And the next one came up and said, I, I bring myrrh. And the third one with kind of a confused look on his uh, face said, Frank sent this. These are, these are strange words. Where, where do they come from? Frankincense is kind of an ancient spice. It was from tree resin, and it was often used to relieve uh, pain and to aid digestion. It's kind of a rollades of the ancient world. Uh, it was also used to create incense and perfume. Myrrh was a very precious oil, a medicinal oil, used for healing, also used by the Egyptians in their embalming process. Now, while these gifts might not be familiar to us, and they're probably not the things you're going to find on your friend's Amazon wish list, uh, in the ancient world, these were precious gifts. And scholars believe that the value of the frankincense and myrrh uh, together would have been greater than the gold they brought. And that together, these gifts would have represented a value more than Jesus would have earned in an entire lifetime. And they gave these gifts joyfully, They did not feel burdened by the giving of these gifts. They didn't feel anxious or fearful in the giving of their gifts. They were giving out of their exceeding joy. Worship always involves giving. Go all the way back to the very beginning. In the very first family of the Bible, Cain and Abel brought offerings as an act of worship. And then we see Abraham, when he was told to go to the place that God would reveal to him, he would build altars as he traveled and offer sacrifices. And then the people of Israel, they would bring gifts into the tabernacle first, and then later in their history into the temple. And this practice carried right into the early church where they would make collections for the poor and for brand new churches. Worship has always involved giving. But why? 
wonder if you ever thought about that. Why did the people of old give gifts to God? Does God lack in some way? Does God have a need? Is God under-resourced for his work in the world? Is this some way to prove our loyalty somehow to God? No, no, none of these things. The reason the Magi were overjoyed and brought their gifts is because they discovered in Jesus a wholly different kind of God. You have to understand what was going on in the ancient world, that all the countries, all the areas around Israel, people believe very different things about the gods. People believe that the gods were easily angered, easily irritated, that they were difficult to appease, that they had these huge appetites and they wanted people to come and give them stuff because uh, 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 they, they wanted to fill their own needs. And so people brought offerings, sometimes violent, grotesque offerings in an effort to appease the gods or get something from the gods to get fertility or to get rain and they would bring gifts so that maybe the gods wouldn't punish them or retaliate against them. One historian writer by the name of John Walton describes it this way. He says, the gods in the ancient world were not the object of enthusiastic pursuit. That's putting it mildly. He says, the people sought the gods for protection and assistance not for relationship. You couldn't have a relationship with the gods of the ancient world. Uh, you didn't love the gods. They sure didn't love the people. They were all about their own needs, uh, and they only loved themselves. And this was, by the way, this was norm for every culture of the ancient Near East except for one. Want to guess which one? This little tribe of ex-slaves called Israel believed and taught that there is one God, Yahweh, and this God has no needs. This God is fully sufficient. This God is not easily angered or irritated. He cannot be bribed or bought. He is not demanding or impatient. They believed, they understood, they defined God's primary function to be a provider to be a giver. And you see this from the very beginning of the Bible. God gives to people the, the world to live in and inhabit and control. God gives them people so they can be in relationship. God gives them guidance so they can know the right kind of life to live. God gives them his own presence. The primary action that the God of Israel takes in the Bible is to give. God is a giving God. And you might say, well, that'd be very easy for God to do because God has unlimited resources and so he can give and it doesn't really cost him anything. And if you thought that, I encourage you to take a closer look at Christmas when God gave his one and only son. At Christmas, God gave the one thing that he only had one of. And it was a sacrificial gift, a real gift a costly gift. And it tells us, it paints this amazing picture of a God who loves to give, who lives to give, who finds joy in giving, which is why the Magi were overjoyed and brought gifts because they found in the manger a wholly different kind of God, the God of Israel, the God of Christmas, the God of Jesus, the ultimate gift of life and grace. I want to make three observations about how the Magi gave, and I think these can serve us uh, as well. First of all, the Magi gave 
intentionally. They gave on purpose and thoughtfully and strategically. A writer and researcher by the name of Adam Grant has done some research on what he calls reciprocity styles. He says people have basically three different postures to the way they relate to other people, and they can be summarized by these words, he says. First, there are the givers. Givers uh, like to give more than get, and they're always looking for ways to help other people. Then there are the takers, and as you would guess, takers like to receive more than give, and they're always thinking about their own needs. They're givers and takers. It was the third category I thought was interesting. The third category is matchers. Matchers, their primary concern is fairness, that everything be equal, and they kind of keep records about the give and take. And so if you give me this size gift, I better give you this kind of gift back because we want to be equal across the board. I don't know if you're thinking about which style you have. Then he did some research to determine what drives the most successful people in our world, uh, what motivates them. And it's not the takers. We might assume the takers accumulate the most throughout life, but that's not what the study found. The study found that the most successful people were the natural givers, people concerned about other people in every field, in every endeavor. Jesus said, give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. In other words, be a giver, not a taker. Because remember, our God is a giving God. For God so loved the world that he gave. And then notice they gave together. For many of us, giving can be an individualistic pursuit. But notice the wise men traveled together. They arrived together. They gave together. I saw a skit one time with the three wise men uh, uh, standing in a circle talking about their gifts. What, 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 what did you get him? What did you get him for his birthday? And well, I, got, I got him some myrrh. What did you get him? I got him some frankincense. Well, I got him some gold. And they were discussing, now should we, should we give them the gifts individually or should we put all of our names on all the gifts and give them together? Now, I, and I, I, I don't know if that's the way it came down, but we can imagine that the, the wise men gave not competitively, but collaboratively. How many wise men were there? We don't know. The Bible does not say. We know there were three gifts, and we can presume they were given together. Some of you might have heard about this interesting phenomenon in our culture right now called giving circles. Anybody following this? Giving circles. Some are formally organized. Some are informal. They're popping up online. Strangers find each other on social media to come together and give creatively in community. And people who uh, study this kind of stuff say that community enables generosity. That being in community sparks a kind of generosity that would not happen otherwise. That we impact farther when we do it together. And the church is the original giving circle. And we can have fun together and have impact when we give together. You, you might try making your family a giving circle and find some project your family can do together or your small group or your club or your class. We do it together in community. And lastly, number three, they gave joyfully, joyfully. Uh, Angie and I lived in Kentucky for a brief time for some postgraduate studies. And one Sunday, we, uh, we, we visited a church it, it met in a local campground, so we should have known it was going to be different. And at one point in the service, the pastor said, All right, church, 
It's time for the offering. And the congregation bursts into applause and hoops and hollers and cheers. And Angie and I were looking around like, this is not a Presbyterian church. <laughs> and I don't, I don't know the backstory. I don't know how that church had this as part of their culture. Uh, we can only assume that somebody taught about the Apostle Paul's words when he says, God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. And that word cheerful in the Greek is the Greek word hilarion hilarious givers and they must have taught that in this church and that's how they responded and I want to announce today that we are never going to do that <laughs> the wise men were overjoyed and they brought their gifts bringing is an act of worship and honestly you can bring anything you can bring your resources you can bring your time you can bring your talents you can even bring your pain and your brokenness and God will use that. The wise men left changed. Unwittingly, they got wrapped up in the greatest story ever told. And they experienced a joy that takers and matchers will never know. And, you know, we believe uh, that it was the, the gifts of the wise men that made it possible for uh, Mary and Joseph and Jesus to flee to Egypt. Remember, when, when Herod tried to kill all the baby boys, the family fled to safety uh, to Egypt and it was those gifts most likely that made that possible which means this is overstating it from a human perspective what it means is their gifts saved the Savior from a human perspective God did it and God used their gifts last night I read to my family from a book uh, called The Gift of the Magi by O. Henry O. Henry is the pen name of an American short story writer that wrote a uh, hundred years ago. His real name was William Porter. And William Porter had what I think is a very difficult life. When he was born, his mother died. And then in infancy, his father became a raging alcoholic and left him to fend for himself. He managed to make it to adulthood and he got married and he and his wife had a son and his son died. And then his wife got ill and then uh, the company that he worked for went bankrupt, and he was accused of bankruptcy, uh, of embezzlement, causing the bankruptcy. And he always said he was innocent, but he had to flee for a while, the country, and he went to Honduras. And while he's in Honduras, he gets word that his wife, whom he loves, has become deathly ill. He returns to the United States. She dies. He is uh, tried and convicted of embezzlement and goes to prison. And he's in prison for a few years, and it was while he was in prison, he learned that he could write, that he has a gift for writing. And he knows that no one uh, will, will, will buy the stories of a jailbird, and so he writes under various pseudonyms, and his stories have become very famous in the basis of lots of other stories as well. But the one that, that I read to my family yesterday is considered a Christmas story because it takes place at Christmas, but it's really about a, a poor, impoverished young couple, Jim and Della. And all Jim has of any value in this world is a gold watch. It was his grandfather's and then his father's, and now it belongs to him. But, he's, but he doesn't pull that watch out the way they did in that day very often because uh, all he has is a, a crummy, ugly leather strap to hold it. He can't afford one of those chains that are worthy of that kind of watch. He doesn't have any money. The other thing Jim loves a lot because he loves his wife is his wife has long, luxurious hair 
Some people like that. And he longs to give his wife a wonderful Christmas present, but he can't. He wants to give her hair accessories with jewels in them. Back then they called them combs. And, but he can't afford to give her this gift. And he gets this idea, I could sell my watch. I love the watch, but I love my wife more. And the thought of seeing her face light up and seeing these precious jewels in her hair just pushes him over the edge and he sells the watch. And he's all excited in the Christmas morning when he goes to give this Christmas present to Della. And then he sees to his shock that she will not be able to wear them because she has cut off her hair and sold it to a wig maker to buy a platinum chain for a watch that he no longer owns. And it's this wonderful story with this amazing twist at the end, um, which I've now told you and spoiled for you so you don't have to read the book, Merry Christmas. Now, I've summarized the story. The book, again, was written 100 years ago, and it's kind of an old English, and when I read this story to my family, I was, I was a, a crying, and, and my family was just blinking at me, um, kind of the way some of you are looking at me right now, wondering when it's going to be over. <laughs> As I read it to Angie and Gracie last night, the closing line uh, really gets me. Here's how the story closes. And here I have lamely related to you the uneventful chronicle of two foolish children in a flat who most unwisely sacrificed for each other the greatest treasures of their house. But in a last word to the wise of these days, let it be said that of all who give gifts, these two were the wisest. Of all who give and receive gifts, such as they are the wisest. They are the Magi. Ushers, would you come forward as we pray? God, you are the ultimate giver. You have given us all that we have and all that we need. At Christmas, we remember the greatest gift of all, the gift of your son, the gift of life, the gift of hope, the gift of promise, the gift of your very presence. Help us to receive these gifts in ways that change us and change our world. Like the Magi of old, we have come to worship. Receive now our gifts. Receive our praise. We give these in joy, in faith, in gratefulness. May we, as an act of worship today and in the week ahead, be givers who reflect the character of your son, Jesus, in whose name we now pray. And the whole church said,